Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Grow Support. My name is Neil, and today we're diving into an exciting topic, incident management. Everything eventually breaks, and that's where support can step in to make a difference, through preparation and collaboration. To talk about that, I'm joined by Kat Gaines. Kat is a developer advocate at PagerDuty. She enjoys talking and thinking about incident response, customer support, and automating the creation of a delightful end user and employee experience. She previously ran global customer support at PagerDuty, and as a result, it's hard to get her to stop thinking and talking about the potential career paths for tech support professionals. In her spare time, Kat is a mediocre plant parent and a slightly less mediocre pet parent to her two rabbits, Lupin and Ginny, and her dog, Carnita. Let's jump into it. Hi. Hi, Neil. How's it going? It's good. How are you? Good. Pleasure to meet you uh, officially in yeah. person. I watched your your support driven talk uh, as yeah. well. How was that experience for you? It was great. I love speaking at support driven events. There is so much there in terms of folks who follow up after the fact. It's nice to hear too that you know, yeah, someone actually watched the recording because you never know from people who are in the room, and then when the recordings get distributed, you don't always hear feedback, right? And it's just yeah. such a I don't know, you're in the community, you know, it's such a great community. I feel like it's just such an awesome group of people to learn from and toss around ideas back and forth. And it's just, it's always so fun to be at those events. I really love them. Yeah. Well, I'd love to know a little bit more about your journey and support, just kind of how you got into support, what it's been like for you. Yeah. Um, so I guess I've been in support my entire professional career. I kind of fell into it accidentally, which I think is something I was talking with a friend the other day that that just happens to us sometimes. Uh, I <laughs> I graduated from college with all kinds of plans and I graduated into a really bad economy. So I had to kind of just take the first job that came along. Right. And so I started out of college working in technical support as a, at a music industry startup. Um, where they did things like they put together little fan club packages for people who pay, you know, maybe $20 or something to get a little t-shirt of the musician they're following and a couple of other things, early access to concert tickets, those types of things. Uh, I worked at a custom t-shirt printing company where it was really small. So I did support, but then I also did things like artwork and design approvals, just kind of getting your hands and everything a little bit. Uh, and then eventually I ended up at PagerDuty. And so I think PagerDuty was, um, it's a, a couple of the other companies I worked at called themselves sort of tech companies, but PagerDuty was my first actual tech company. Um, it's been almost 10 years there. I can't believe that. It's been a really long time. Uh, and I started working in the support team. I eventually moved kind of just through the ranks to managing parts and then the entire support team, my last role in support at PagerDuty was director of customer support. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, I wanted to try something different. Uh, and an opportunity just came along where our developer advocacy team had an opening and someone there said, actually the person who was leaving uh, said, hey, maybe you should consider applying to backfill my role. I know it's really different from what you're doing, but these are types of things that we do that I think you're pretty good at and you should maybe give it a shot. And so I took that encouragement and I applied and they chose me for the role. So uh, now I get to do, I call it still customer support basically because 
we're still hanging out with our customers. Our goal is to talk to our customers, to understand how they're doing things, to coach them in best practices. Uh, and I find that really exciting because I can take everything I've learned over working at this company that, you know, one of their main bread and butter pieces is incident management and help people understand how to do it better. Uh, and especially when it's a really stressful moment, right? When something is going wrong and you're trying to figure out what to do and how to navigate it. And the fact that we get to just kind of coach people on how to do it better is really fun and exciting. Yeah. I mean, that's super cool. You get to be super hands-on with helping them to fix their own problems and dealing yeah. with the incidents yourself and then kind of breaking that fourth wall and now really working with your customers as well to help them do it better itself as well. Yeah. It, it seems like I, a very nice blend. Has it been a good blend for you? It's been a good blend. And I think the other thing too is I've gotten to meet more of our customers face-to-face -face because a big aspect of the role is going to tech conferences and either presenting oh. there or just connecting with customers there. And so I've actually gotten to meet more people face-to-face -face in this role than I ever did working in the support team when it was mostly just over tickets and emails and phone calls or, you know, sometimes someone would see me wearing my pager duty backpack on the train on the way to work and be like, hey, pager duty, we use that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been more, almost a little bit more hands-on with customers sometimes. Nice. It's from a different viewpoint is right uh, as well, right? You really just want them to be successful and be able to be the, their best selves as well. Exactly. That's our goal. Yeah. You, you mentioned something that incidents are a very stressful moment uh, <laughs> for everyone involved in most cases. And I mean, it's an incident and outage, right? Um, I'm, I always, I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a wild person <laughs> because I always <laughs> feel like incidents are so exciting at the same time. Like for me, they feel like a thunderstorm, like even though it's chaotic, it's going on, you yeah. can't control it. There's some sort of vibrant energy about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm the only one that feels that way. I'm not no. sure. <laughs> oh, no, I've heard that before. I think I feel that way a little bit too. There's the adrenaline rush you get, right? Where there's something happening and it's kind of like, oh, okay, cool. I can jump in and help contribute somehow right now. There's, you know, I'm not just kind of plodding away at a queue if I'm a support agent. It's okay. Something is going down. I need to jump in and be ready to help people. And it is both terrifying and exciting <laughs> and uh, just a lot of things all at the same time. I totally get it. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Perfect. Yeah. yeah <laughs> For for that, I mean, I'm curious, have you had a favorite worst incident or like the biggest dumpster fire that you've had to deal with? Oh, <laughs> most memorable? This is the thing. Our, you know, PagerDuty is in the business of reliability. That is our product at the end of the day. But like any company, stuff happens. Uh, <laughs> and I actually think it's healthy when you see that there are companies who have incidents that, you know, some level of not too frequency but they have them frequent enough that they know how to handle them and they know how to do it well and they're practiced so when something does happen it's not an actual panic everyone is relatively calm about it actually and able to say okay cool we know how to do this we're practiced we know what's going on and i feel like a couple of my favorite ones are probably years back where there were bigger issues than even just us they were things that were affecting kind of you know the entire internet uh and there was one really gnarly one i can't remember what the actual issue was but it was a few years ago and of course we were all we were much smaller then and 
most of our team was sitting in an office kind of just ready to jump in and handle the multiple requests and issues that were coming in around this particular issue. And it was one of those days where it was like, the tickets are coming in so fast that you can't move from your seat. You just have to kind of go, 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 go. And it was the person who was the head of our um, ops team at the time. I guess now that would be the closest equivalent would be like our SRE team, but we called them ops at the time. And I remember that he came in and sat with us and answered tickets and talked to customers himself. Uh, he and his team and other folks around who could help were doing things like bringing me and my teammates water and snacks, just knowing that, hey, I know you really can't even get up or walk away except to like take a bathroom break right now because there is just so much happening so fast. And so the whole team and company was kind of rallying around support to say, you're going to have a lot of tickets and we're going to do whatever we can to support you in that. And that is one of those things that one of the biggest things I kind of never shut up about, I think, is collaboration between engineering, product, and support. And having those relationships really healthy and built that way and having that kind of just support from the rest of the business for the teams who are customer facing and saying, hey, you're not alone in this, even when it is kind of scary and hard. And honestly, your customers are probably being a little bit mean in some cases. They can be a little unkind when they're stressed out too, right? Uh, and knowing that other people have your back, that's what makes a, a great incident if there is such a, no, there is such a thing. That's what makes a great incident. I'm just going to go ahead and state that. I love it. I love it because you're not only then just talking about dealing with the incident in the moment, it's also yeah. building the culture and collaboration of the company and all yeah. the parts leading up to it. Like if you're yeah. good in practice and you have a good relationship, you can handle those situations much better rather than maybe somebody who faces an incident that's breaking everything, but then they don't get any support from the business and they're like, why am I in this alone? Right, right. Is there is there something that you think people can do to kind of start building that collaboration early? Mm -hmm. There's a lot. Um, <laughs> so I think it, there are so many things. And you know what? I realized I was sitting down yesterday writing some notes in anticipation of this conversation. And I realized that I need to actually probably write more content on this for people because I've written and I've presented conferences and things, bits and pieces of this. But... I was kind of thinking, okay, what am I going to talk about tomorrow? And I realized, oh gosh, there's a lot here that we actually haven't even touched. Uh, so this is the beginning of that starting. But I think one of the things is to start thinking about that kind of collaboration really early on when you're designing incident response processes. It has to be a key piece. So if, for example, engineering or product are designing the process, they can't do that in isolation. They need to include their customer-facing teams as part of the design, not just part of the, we designed a thing and we want you to come into it. No, help us design it, help us understand what good should look like. And if it's the flip side, if, you know, I've heard of folks where their support teams are managing or designing the processes, you still have to cultivate that good relationship with your peers in other departments and be able to start talking to them and say, okay, who are my kind of co-conspirators in other departments? Both from the leadership perspective and from the individual contributor perspective, both groups of people have to do their part to build those relationships across those lines, across the business, and be able to say, 
who are the people that I know I can go to? Who are the people who are going to respond in a measured and calm and informative manner when I need something? And then also how do we work with each other is a really important piece of it to get ahead of as well. So what's the piece where, how do we talk to each other when something's happening? What are our collaboration tools? What are our rules around how we engage or how many people get in the conversation? It kind of all starts at that beginning of the process building. Uh, and then you just keep iterating on that over time. Yeah, I, I love that. I'm I'm one of those second people in the bucket of the support yeah, teams that creating I know, and that's designing how we started talking about this. Yeah. <laughs> I uh so I've always been the one in our company because we're growing, we're we're fairly small as well and we're starting to really scale so some of these processes need to start becoming more officially uh right. in place and standardized per se because in the past i've always been rapid response on there uh me and our vp of tech are like yeah we're the incident dream team we just come in and smash mm -hmm. it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh but now we need to really we had we had a fairly recent uh, opportunity to learn what a real full cross-functional incident looks like and uh, it's a big eye opener when you run into those like, OK, who are those people? How does it need to work? What do we need to do? So now we're starting to really formalize that process. And I'm taking the, the lead on making sure that the communication goes well and that we do formalize it in a way. And what do you say? You can't do that in isolation uh, because I'm on the support side. I need to be able to understand the resources that we'll have available, the communication channels, what you mean, uh, and also what an incident looks like from their side, because maybe a degradation of a certain product isn't considered an incident for them, or there are a lot of right. things that happen that are maybe customers don't quite notice yet, uh, yeah. and we fix them before they do. So is that considered an incident? Do we need to report on that? I'm curious from your side, like what would you consider is the difference between degradation and incident and outage? Do you define those things differently? Oh my God. Yeah, it's so important to have those terms defined up front too. That's another part of that building process, right? Being able to understand, okay, is this something that I'm going to go even one step below those three terms that you said? What is just a bug <laughs> that is not worth any kind of like organized response or calling people out of a regular day-to-day, -day, but instead just noting and saying, this is broken, we gotta fix it eventually, but we don't have to mobilize a whole company or multiple team response for it. Uh, a degradation is a step above that, right? It's gonna be something that is actively affecting your service. Sometimes I think I've seen folks kind of keep degradation and incident in the same definition bucket where it's just, we are having a service degradation and that's fine to say, to be able to just understand that, all right, something is wrong. We need to mobilize a response around it. We need to get people on it immediately. We can't wait and hang out to fix this. Uh, but it's not a full scale outage because when you say it's an outage, and this is one of the things that I feel like I coach people on a lot, when you say that word, it is triggering for people. It is really scary. Right? Uh, people think that your entire product is down, that you can't be relied upon. It is just a word that flips a switch in people's brains and so that's one of the main communication pieces i coach on is language and knowing what you're saying down to are you saying degradation or incident or outage and understanding the, di the difference having those thresholds defined for your organization they look different for everyone but just understanding what that means for your org uh, and then also just in while we're talking about terminology and language understanding what you're saying too so 
one of the things I talk about a lot is defining terms and making sure that everyone's on the same page about knowing what we mean and what we're talking about. And there's an internal aspect to that and an external aspect. And one of those internal aspects is you need to make sure support knows what everything is internally that's being impacted. We come up with all kinds of code names for things, for product launches, for internal tools, for systems. And, you know, we, I, we like to have fun at work, right? So we come up with cutesy names for them or names that we think are fun and witty, but that don't have any actual description of what that thing does often. And it's okay to have those names, but you have to have a, di a dictionary somewhere internally so that anyone can look at it and say, okay, what does that thing mean? Cool. I've got it. I understand it. And then the same thing is true with acronyms, which is one of my favorite things to hate uh, <laughs> because there can be so much just assumption around acronyms and just saying that, okay, I think everyone understands this. It's common. You don't know that everyone understands that. Maybe that person has never come across that before. Maybe they're from a different culture or have a different first language. That acronym has never entered their consciousness. Um, and so you have to define those things too. And then the same goes for externally facing. You can't assume that your customers know what you mean just because you're intimately familiar with your systems. You have to be as clear and succinct as possible in defining those terms so that when they look at your update about what's going on, they have no question about what's impacted. They know what part of the product, they know what part of their experience is going to be impacted. And they don't have to come back to you just asking for clarification on that because that's the last thing you want in that moment, right? That someone's saying, oh, I read your status update, but I don't really... How am I impacted? What does this do for yeah, me? Yeah, like, what, what does it mean right? for me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't want that question. You want to be able to answer actual questions uh, that are a little more urgent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I love what you say about the acronyms because we, me and some other people in our org, as an e-learning company, we make courses. We have a big library of courses. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we have all of those abbreviated for, for ease of use and, and just in yeah. the systems. Like you don't want to have these giant long names in the systems. So uh, yeah, it is something that we do have an internal glossary for. But at the same time, if you're communicating it to in, a, in this instance where it, it does need to be as clear and as you know full as possible for people to be able to walk in and understand how they're impacted, especially new hires, for example, who haven't learned the glossary yet or aren't yes. familiar with it, yeah. uh, purposely do, don't use acronyms to make it clear. Uh, and then also, yeah, for, for customers, uh, what you say is absolutely something. We interact with our product every single day. We know it inside and out. Uh, our customers, maybe this is their first time interacting with it. They have no idea about your product. Being very clear, very level with them, uh, speaking their language uh, is definitely, definitely an important part of that as well. Yeah, what even do down think? to the non-incident aspect, right? In your knowledge bases, in your documentation systems for customers, you still have to assume that they don't know what you're talking about with every piece of terminology and have a glossary there too. It's a constant practice, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, just to create a sense of clarity and understanding for everybody. Yeah, uh, yeah. If everybody's on the same page, it's a much better experience internally, externally. Oh, always, always, always. So what, like, at what point do you think it's important to start formalizing this process and start to practice it? Because when you do get hit with this scary trigger word outage, <laughs> everything is down. Yeah. You want to be prepared for it. When do you start preparing for that moment? as early as possible. You don't know when something's gonna break. It might be on day two of your product existing and 
you want to be able to learn from that and formalize, okay, if that happens again, what are we going to do? Really, there's never too early. I would say there is probably too early for some aspects of it where you can't be as granular, for example, if you don't have a large team, uh, you can't get too granular about different roles and responsibilities, but you can at least start following frameworks. And there's a lot of stuff that PagerDuty has out there um, in our operations guides that we have available to folks in terms of just what does basic incident structure look like. And I feel like some of that might look overwhelming if, like I'm saying, if it's a very small business or product and you don't have a lot of people, but you can take at least the basic of it. So what, you want to know what happens when something goes wrong. You want to start there. You want to know where the pain points are and you want to know what you have to do to get things back up and running. Those are kind of the key pieces of understanding when an incident happens, what are we going to do? And you'll generally want the elements too of the people of who is in charge. We call that an incident commander. If you look at pager duty training materials, I think that's a relatively standard term, but some folks might call it something different. You want to look at who's taking notes. You want to have a scribe, someone to just document what's going on through the incident call so you can learn from it later. Who's responsible for fixing the thing? You should have subject matter experts that you call in if it is a product with many features or a business with many different products. For example, you want the person who owns that part of the product to be able to come in and help understand what's going on and fix it, or at least someone on their team. And you want to know how you all collaborate in the moment. Those are kind of the key elements, right? So you might have a Slack channel. You might have a conference call. You might have both. That's what we have at PagerDuty. Um, but it should be something live. Emails, you know, aren't going to cut it, obviously, when those seconds matter. So you need to have some form of live collaboration. And those are the key things that you have to have just to get started and get up and running. Have those people in place. Have those processes. Have a collaboration tool. And then, of course, you can start adding on more. So obviously, PagerDuty is a tool for these moments. If you're using PagerDuty or something like it, it's an excellent way to do a few key things, too. You can track the incident and all the information around it. You can pull people in as responders and let them know that they're needed to come jump in and help. You can send notifications to business stakeholders so they don't have to go interrupt the incident call just to get a status. Maybe your CEO wants to know what's going on and you don't necessarily want her to join the incident call and say, hey, what's going on in the middle of a conversation trying to fix it? So you can send her that notification instead. You can apply some automation for the parts where you really shouldn't need people to click a button to do something. You can spin up status pages for people to follow along, again, whether that's internal stakeholders or when you get to the point of communicating to your customers, and then get some reports after the fact just to understand your system and your people better. So having all of those things in place, however you do them as well, those are the next pieces to kind of start considering. But no matter what, you have to have an agreement organization-wide on where the information lives in these moments and how you talk to each other about it. And then why we're talking about it here, right, is because that extends to your support team. So when I was running support at PagerDuty, and they, you know, obviously we still have these policies, I'm just not in that role, but we had company policies on incident response, but we also had really extensive training and documentation for our support team who were our responders, especially our support engineers. And so we had things like agreements on how we work together internally in the team. We had write-ups of what our specific incident process was and where to go in the moment. We had artifacts over the years that we created, like field manuals for just different places that you'll go when something is happening and you need to find things quickly. 
they're going to have to be the people to communicate to also your other team members and be able to function seamlessly as a team. So it has to cover things too, like how and when to hand off, you know, don't be a hero and try to handle a six hour incident all by yourself. Be ready to hand off to someone, uh, how to communicate to the rest of the team who might not be directly involved, but they're still in the queue answering tickets and questions and how to self care in the moment. I think that's another really important piece. I, I am a really proud recovering workaholic. Um, I have over the years found multiple ways of burning myself out. And now I just don't shut up about self-care pretty much ever. You need it. And that's also something that has to be built into your process and thought about as well as what we were talking about earlier, how your team builds relationships with other teams and their systems and how you work together harmoniously in the moment. That's kind of the starter kit for uh, just all of the things that you need to get started. And it sounds like a lot, but when you really break them down to their essentials, you can do a lot of that with minimal tooling and uh, just a few people. And then you can scale on it as your team scales, your budget scales, as all of those things become a little bit more uh, just necessary in terms of what you're covering and how many people you have in the process. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I think, one of the analogies that people use when it comes to, like, doing self-care in the moment is always the airplane analogy. Like, you need to put on yep. your, your mask put before on your you can your own oxygen flow. mask first, yeah. <laughs> um, it, there's a lot to go through there in terms of tooling and the things that you can. Uh, I'd love to start with one for small teams, like obviously there's a lot of people, customer teams of one. So there it's fairly straightforward of who's dealing with that and, and how, to, how to manage it. When you start growing your team, I, for example, I have three support specialists. Our engineers are in a different team and success is in a different team. Uh, for junior team members who have never handled incidents or anything like that, do you think that there's a good way to start prepping them and training them on how to deal with these so that they can get the skills and be able to be prepared for those moments? Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of things. There's uh, having it documented, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, you want to have some kind of run book or playbook for what the processes are. And you don't have to come up with that kind of off the top of your head, especially if you maybe haven't had some a few incidents. That's something that can be a living document and people can and should add to as things happen. So for example, there's a new type of incident. There's a clear process for handling it. Cool. Go add that to that run book and then you have something that you can rely upon when that happens. But then I think too, with newer folks and newer team members, you can't just have them read documentation. It's really easy to read documentation and kind of just glaze over and say, okay, cool, I got it. And then when something happens, you're going, I don't got it. What do I do now? <laughs> right? And so uh, doing things like shadow programs are really, really helpful. So if, for example, we're working in a company together and you're the established employee, you've been there a while, you know what's going on, you're primary on call, I will be the secondary on call if I'm the new hire who doesn't have any clue what's up. And if you get paged for an incident, I'll get paged right along with you. I'll join the call. I'll listen to what's going on. I'll observe what you're doing. And then we'll have a little bit of a debrief later, just so you can fill me in on any parts that I might not have caught in the moment. I can ask questions about what happened. And we can just kind of go over every detail of it so that when I do have to face something by myself, when I'm the established employee and I'm primary on call, I feel more confident because I've seen it happen in real time. And I know what that looks like. I'm not just theorizing about it and trying to understand what might it look like. I don't know. 
Um, there's an advanced version of what might it look like that is also fun to do. So uh, PagerDuty, as long as I can remember, has called them Failure Fridays. I don't know. I don't think they always happen on Friday anymore. But uh, it's basically just a set aside time to intentionally, in a controlled environment, break something a little bit and go through the processes of fixing it. Um, or even just simulate breaking something a little bit and go through the processes of what would this look like to fix it. And it's something engineering does, but it's something that when I was running support, we incorporated into the support team as well. We held our own internal team failure Fridays, and we would just go through what are our incident response processes. We would pretend something is broken. We would spin up a conference call. We would get folks on Slack. We would start going through every piece of our process. And we had things like a mock status page set up that we would publish messages to so people could get a feel for working in that tool and understanding what it looked like. Basically, every every piece of the pro process, excuse me, we had basically a sandbox environment so that folks could just go through the process comfortably. And then when the real thing happens, they're not worried about what the clicking of the buttons looks like or where do they go find those templates for communication that they know are somewhere, but they've never actually had to look them up in a pressured moment. Uh, and it always felt a little silly. We would even go to the lengths of just generating ridiculous tickets um, so that the queue would get flooded and then filter them out of our reporting later. Um, but uh, really everything that we could just to get people prepped for this is what it's going to feel like when something crazy is happening so that in the moment it doesn't feel so crazy. You at least feel calm and in control. I love that because like for me, I've always been able to deal with incidents fairly well because I have built most of the systems that we use and right. the operations side of it. So I, it's like muscle memory to me. I know where to go to look. I know where to go to investigate, what to do, how to click and things like that. But I can imagine for somebody who is learning the systems or doesn't have the deep system knowledge that maybe an experienced person does or somebody who's built it for example uh that when they also are getting pressure from customers of like hey this isn't working and this is all blowing up in their face a little bit uh of like okay i also just don't know where to click it's extremely stressful for maybe them uh versus somebody who's like oh yeah i'm just gonna go here i'm gonna look for this i'm gonna look for that these two dots connect that looks broken i'm gonna fix that um so really giving them a safe environment to be able to practice and be able to get that muscle memory is uh, is definitely important having that documentation yeah. in place and teaching them the system knowledge depth <laughs> in the first yeah. place <laughs> yeah and it's exactly like you're saying it is muscle memory it's like any other workout right if you go lift weights to get stronger you have to do the same thing for your brain and you have to do the same thing at work and so being able to have that practice it's the exact same thing just in a different form yeah definitely um we talked a lot about the internal process and really being able to prepare and build for the future when it comes to the actual customer communication when those tickets start to kind of roll in and flood how do you think is an easy way for people to identify okay when's the right moment that we escalate this uh, into yeah. a larger incident into an incident itself so um, it's going to come back to those thresholds that we talked about earlier with talking about what really designates an incident versus an outage versus just a bug and again that's going to look different for every business but what i've seen people do is a percentage of customers impacted um if there is no known fix for example for something if someone can't kind of go reproduce that in their test environment and say, okay, cool, we've got a workaround that might not 
qualified as an incident, for example, but if that's not possible, it's definitely an incident. Um, if a critical experience of the product is functionally broken, you know, people can't log in um, for pager duty, a massive piece of our product is notifications. And so if there are no notifications being sent, that's obviously an incident, right? Uh, and so it's really going to depend on your product, on what the critical functions are. And then I feel like I've seen, you know, 10% maybe thrown around for the number of customers impacted to start designating an incident. Again, it's going to look different for everyone because just the critical need is going to look different. But you want to have those thresholds defined and you want to have them defined between engineering and product. You want them to ha have them defined between support and success. Everyone has to agree on those thresholds. Uh, and then also know what they look like, too. So when you're saying there's a flood of tickets in the queue, there has to be a process for understanding kind of, all right, how do we look into this and investigate it and actually understand who's impacted? Uh, and then what is the point at which the queue is so flooded, the tickets are coming in so fast that we just hit the panic button. That can be part of the definition, too. Yeah, yeah, we, we personally use uh, frequency and volume. So if we start to see that flood come in, it's like same topic, same topic, same topic within the same period. We're like, oh, definitely, definitely starting. It's at least a low grade incident, right? <laughs> Even if you can resolve it fast, that's at least yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the level of impact is very important. Yeah. You, you mentioned you took some preparatory notes for today's conversation. Is there anything that you had in your notes that we didn't cover that you would like to share? Uh, we've gone through some of the topics, but I think just kind of the basic structure of what does it look like to be a responder as a support agent, that is something that people, I think, often flail with just a little bit in terms of understanding, well, what are my responsibilities? What do I do? And so when you are in or when your team is in incident response, one of the key things you're going to do is listen. That is job number one, is to take in and absorb what's happening, right? Uh, and so uh, usually you'll have an incident commander or someone similar running the call. And so really absorbing what they're saying, understanding who's called in on, as a subject matter expert from what areas of the company or what areas of the product, and really familiarizing yourself with, okay, cool, here's what's going on and here's what's impacted. So that the minute that, you know, your manager or your teammates ask you what's up, you can kind of quickly parrot it back and just help them understand what's going on as they're answering tickets too. Uh, and then the second part of that job is interpreting and communicating. So uh, we mentioned communication a little bit. A big part of a customer support agent's job, excuse me, in an incident is going to be communicating. And that's going to be either internally, externally, or both. Sometimes I've seen people split up those roles so someone else is doing internal communication and support is only doing external especially when you get to scale, that can be really wise because it can become a lot to handle very quickly. Um, but getting out your draft of your understanding of what's going on and just quickly writing it down, crafting it to your understanding of what accuracy is. We talked earlier about understanding your organization's systems and having those terms defined. That will be very helpful in this moment. Of course, if you know what terms are being referred to in the call, you don't have to waste time asking for definitions as you're trying to craft a status update. But if you do, also don't feel ashamed and don't cultivate an environment where there is shame if someone has to ask. You have to cultivate that environment of learning and the understanding that that is always the better option if you don't know. But then when you have that understanding, you have your draft, you want to get it out to the incident commander and ask them for a review just for accuracy. If they have any tweaks to suggest, go ahead and make those and then get that out as soon as possible. Um, 
in the talk that uh, I gave at Support Driven that you had mentioned, Neil, I had said, get that update out within the first five minutes. And I feel like people sometimes, that's really fast. But really, that is just acknowledgement that there's something happening. You already know that there's something happening. That doesn't take almost any additional information or deep understanding of systems, just acknowledging that, yep, we see that something is happening so that your customers don't have to come to your team and say, my account is clearly broken. I can't log in. Something's clearly going on. There's nothing on your status page. Why? You don't want to have them ask that question. So getting that update out quickly, making sure it's accurate, and then you basically wash, rinse, and repeat that process throughout the call. You up your thresholds a little bit through uh, how often you're going to communicate. You're obviously not going to communicate every five minutes. 20 minutes is a pretty frequent cadence that I see people take. If the incident starts to drag on and on and on, you might consider, for example, calling it a long-running incident, and then you're going to update less frequently, but you're still going to keep your customers in the loop around how often you're going to update. So if you expect to update them next in an hour, let's say, you're going to tell them that in the update where you're identifying that this is going to take a while. We're not going to update you every 20 minutes anymore, but we are going to keep updating you and it's going to be at that frequency. I think the other important piece too is, again, making sure that you have those tools and mechanisms in place and making sure that you have responsibilities well-defined. So I've seen moments where someone has jumped into an incident call and told the engineer, the subject matter expert who's trying to fix the actual issue to help draft messaging. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't mix and match responsibilities. Uh, Support is not going to go try and fix the issue that engineering is responsible for, and engineering should not try to draft the communication that support's responsible for. Not only is it distracting, but again, you're training people for specific roles in this moment, and you want people to be able to stick to that script as much as possible so that there's reduced confusion and there isn't very much chaos. It's really about just kind of understanding what your teams are responsible for, what they are, and making sure that everything goes as smoothly as possible in that moment. Yeah, even though it's a very uncertain or unknown moment of kind of chaos, if you're able to kind of really navigate it smoothly and cleanly just as a team because you know your roles, you know where you need to be and what you need to do, it can go a very, very long way in making that. Also for your customers, a very smooth experience. We had an incident, uh, small, small, low, low key incident, I would say a little while ago. Uh, but because me and our VP of tech knew exactly our roles in the situation, uh, I did everything customer. Uh, he did everything in the back end to fix it. We were able to just make sure that even for customers, they were like, oh, this is really well handled. You're on top of it. I don't need to worry. Uh, and if you're giving customers that confidence as much as possible that, hey, it's being yeah. taken, it's good. You can also have an amazing opportunity to make that experience for customers even better because they could trust you in the future to be able to handle those kinds of situations well. Uh, I think that's great. And then I think too, we're talking about the customer experience, the team experience is one of the key pieces of incident response too. I feel like we forget about this a little bit because it's very much, okay, we need to be all hands on deck. We need to mobilize, we need to get going. 
But you have to do things throughout the process to make sure that your team can not only keep their head about them, but they feel protected and safe in incident response as well. Um, the psychological safety has to be there. I mentioned earlier, not creating any culture of shame for someone who has to ask questions in the moment. That's the key thing you want to be able to do. But then it's also about decompressing as well. So after an incident, for example, let that person take an extended break if it's maybe midday in the middle of the workday or consider even maybe giving them free time off to use somewhere later in the week. So you might have someone who was on an incident for three hours. Maybe they leave work three hours early on a day of their choice without having to dip into their PTO, things like that, right? Uh, just making sure that they can balance out that time and still have their time and that we're prioritizing the agent experience. That's something else that I feel like I talk about a lot, uh, that if your team is happy, your customers will be happier. Uh, just by proxy, if your team feels protected in their role, if they feel that even though they're in a role that can be chaotic by its very nature, let's not you know beat around the bush around it. That's what support is. But as a leader, it's really your job to create that feeling. And you can also do that by giving them opportunities to help design the process and you can learn more from them as well. Maybe they heard something cool someone else is doing in incident response, so you can give that a shot, let folks get feedback. You can't always think of yourself as a leader as just the expert and the only person who knows what's going on, for example. If you've read every book, you've listened to every talk on best practices, there's so much that experts don't know until someone says they've done it. I'm going to just be self-aware of that. There's so much that I don't know until I hear that someone else is doing something cool. And then I can say, oh, well, that's actually something I think that I'm going to put into my recommendations in the future because that makes a lot of sense. You also can protect them too by just helping keep it light. For example, if you're in an office in one of these moments, not all of us are anymore, but if you happen to be in that environment, you can do things like put on some music <laughs> if it's not distracting to just kind of help people just ground back into reality a little bit. You can do things like, you know, we used to order like cookies to the office uh, just so folks had something to snack on if they needed to. You can celebrate later on if you had an especially hard week. Make sure that your team gets that time together to decompress and be proud of what they did too. That's something we don't always talk about that you can be proud of doing incident response well. We have that concept of hug ops in tech where, you know, we see that someone else is having a hard time and we'll send them a little hug ops tweet or something like that. But you can cultivate that in your team too. And if you know that they're going through it or if other teams know they're going through it, they can be there to support them. And also help them not just take it too personally. Uh, customers will always blame you in that moment, right? And like we mentioned earlier, sometimes they won't be very kind about how they do that. And so it's another thing leaders can do too, is help take the load off your team sometimes as a leader. Step in and stop those convos where your customer is no longer being productive. Definitely never accept abuse of your team by a customer or coworker, but make sure that you're also acting as a shield and stepping in to make sure that your team gets the time they need to decompress and come back as their, as their full self. So they're not completely burnt out on the concept of doing this the very first time it happens. Yeah, that's that's huge. I mean, being able to take care of your team and create that safe environment, but also make it like it is what you said. It's chaos by nature. Uh, the things that we do in support a lot of the times and how we handle that and how we deal with it uh, and how we take it in stride sometimes is very, very important. Uh, and giving the team the ability to 
recuperate and recover and maintain that positive mindset and have the room to be able to feel safe is huge and important, especially as leaders when we set them up. Uh, and give them ownership, what you said, co-create the process together, experiment with things, be able to give it back to them so that they feel really a part of it and, and are a part of it there as well and making it work for them because you might build an entire process that works for your company, it works for the business, but if it's not also supporting your team, then you're still going to have difficulties in executing cleanly uh, there as well. Yeah, it's I love that leadership isn't dictatorship. Oh, def definitely. <laughs> we could talk hours and days yeah, about that. Yeah, that's, that's another episode. <laughs> 100%, 100%. I, I love the insights that you've shared and your experience and, and your expert knowledge on, on this topic as well and really helping people to be able to better manage incidents and support their team. Uh, in general, I really love wrapping up with one question. Really, I'm curious if there's one thing that you've learned over the course of your career that you've held to and still stick to today. Oh, man. There are a lot of things, and I think that's a really hard question, but I think it actually comes back to a little bit to the topic we were just discussing, which is creating safety in the process. No matter what you do, the process has to be well outlined. You have to have all the pieces you need that we were talking about earlier. But the most important thing is that everybody feels like they have a say in it and they feel like they have some sense of control in what's happening to them in a moment that is inherently out of control. That is what incident management is. And so if you can cultivate that for your team, that's how you know that you've won and you're doing it right. No matter what other pieces need to be ironed out, if they feel safe, if they feel like they have a sense of control, if they are ready to jump in the next time an incident happens, you've done it. You're on your way. Oh, I love it. That's, that's such a important thing to keep in mind uh, because it's really not just about you. It's also about the others around you and being able to support them as well. It's a people process. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much, Kat. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we're also a little bit over time. Fine. Uh, no, thank but... you. This is fun. Perfect. I love it. Well, with that, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so Me much. Too.